pharmaceutical companies, universities, and other organizations are forging ahead with the development of multiple SARS coronavirus 2 vaccine candidates. Although new platform technologies could help speed testing and manufacturing, developing vaccines in the midst of a pandemic still has important challenges. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nicole Lurie, Strategic Advisor to the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Dr. Lurie has co-authored a perspective article about the development of COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Lurie, could you start by telling us a bit about attempts to develop vaccines during past epidemics, such as H1N1 influenza, Ebola? What kinds of strategies have worked and what have the obstacles been? Well, sure. The strategies and what's worked uh, has differed, frankly, by outbreak. If you go all the way back to the SARS outbreak, there were attempts to develop a vaccine and the disease burned out. It just went away before those vaccines could be fully developed and tested. In the case of H1N1, the process of making influenza vaccines had been pretty tried and true. And as part of pandemic planning, there had been an agreement that strain changes for flu could basically be licensed through the traditional flu vaccine pathways. So although it took a little bit of time to manufacture all the flu vaccine as quickly as people wanted it to, the processes used pretty tried-and-true processes and were able to go forward pretty exponentially. And ultimately, the H1 vaccine became part of seasonal flu vaccine. In the case of trying to make a vaccine against Zika, again, that disease pretty much burned out before the vaccine could be tested. And the major funder of Zika vaccines, which was the U.S. government, sort of lost interest and put its efforts somewhere else. And so the companies that had invested a lot of time and effort in doing this felt a little bit like they were left holding the bag. They hadn't been able to complete development, especially because there's no market for it. And then finally, in the case of Ebola, reasonably early on in the Ebola outbreak, it was recognized that there was an Ebola candidate that was already through some development, particularly preclinical development in Canada. And so although it was quite a challenging process, the U.S. government, in collaboration with a series of developers, were able ultimately to fund the development of that vaccine and transfer it to Merck. But it took from, what, 2014 until the end of 2019 to have a licensed vaccine. There are other developers also trying to make Ebola vaccine. And again, as the disease now has waned, at least for now, it's been very hard to complete clinical trials on those vaccines to be sure that they are both safe and effective. In your perspective article, you mentioned development and manufacturing platforms that have been in the works and that could be readily adapted to new pathogens. What do those tools look like and how does that approach differ from traditional methods of vaccine development? That's a great question. And in some sense, you could look at some of the traditional methods of vaccine development, like making an inactivated vaccine or making flu vaccine in eggs as kind of a platform. But these new platforms are intended to be a little bit pathogen agnostic. The hope is that they'll express an antigen and that you can make a vaccine to multiple sorts of pathogens on that same platform. So some of them are nucleic acid vaccines, either DNA vaccines or messenger RNA vaccines. Some are protein subunit vaccines. 
for example, or non-replicating vector vaccines. Each of those has been developed with the idea of making vaccines for existing pathogens, and some of them have been especially developed with the idea of being able to make a vaccine against what we call disease X, the unknown pathogen, with the hope eventually that we develop these platforms to the point that they could make a vaccine really quickly. They have a lot of promise, but for the most part, these new platforms have not been scaled up. So you might be able to make them in a pilot facility or in small amounts. But when you're talking about pandemic scale and needing to manufacture billions of doses for the world, the problems are beyond being sure the platform works. The problems are being sure you could scale up and then that you can, in some sense, transfer that technology to enough places that you can make billions of doses of vaccines. In that regard, we are facing a pandemic. In what ways is vaccine research different during a pandemic than under normal circumstances? What components of the development process have to be changed when speed is as important as it is now? Vaccine development is traditionally a very long and a very expensive process. And that's because you do pieces of it. You'll select a target. You'll do animal studies. You'll stop and be sure that the vaccine is producing the desired immunologic effects and that it's safe. Then you'll do phase one, early trials in humans. You'll stop and be sure that it's safe and effective. And you'll progress in a sequence, stopping multiple times along the way to be sure you're getting what you want. And then ultimately, once you have a vaccine that has gotten through a definitive clinical trials, then you move into manufacturing at scale for commercial use. In a pandemic, there's just not time for all of that. And so we find that we have to do lots of things at the same time. So, for example, for vaccine platforms that have been in development but that have had some trials in humans, some of the regulators have said, go ahead and do your animal studies and your phase one first in human studies in parallel. And this is because for the first time, I think, in the history of vaccine development, there's been an early candidate ready before an animal model's ready, as an example. Do safety and dose selection at the same time. But probably the most important change is that if you want to have vaccine ready to vaccinate a population as soon as your safety and efficacy trials are done, you have to scale up and start to manufacture millions of doses of vaccine before you have any idea whether the vaccine is going to work. And so what you see and read about now is companies that are taking a huge amount of risk and saying, okay, we are starting a manufacturing process and we are going to develop and manufacture millions of doses now with the hope that this vaccine works and then we can start to go ahead and vaccinate a population. Some companies are taking financial risk on their own, and some companies are being funded to do that, either by CEPI or by the U.S. government. What is the current status of vaccines that are in development? What types of approaches are being tested, and do you see any that look particularly promising? So the WHO maintains an up-to-date list of all vaccine candidates on its website. There are about 120-something candidates there. There are about 70 or so in preclinical development. And then there's a handful that have started to be in human trials. So even between the time we submitted this perspective 
And now the table we initially submitted is out of date because, in fact, more candidates have moved from preclinical development into human trials. So as far as we know, there are now five candidates in human trials, and these are DNA vaccine, an inactivated vaccine, and some replicating vector vaccines, and an mRNA vaccine. It's a little bit too soon to know whether any of them are more promising than the other. On average, it takes nine or 10 vaccine candidates to get one to the other end where it's shown to be safe and effective. So we'll have to see how these trials proceed, whether the vaccines are safe, whether they produce an adequate immune response, and then whether they can be scaled. What's the current thinking about whether a vaccine will be critical for ending the COVID-19 pandemic? Are there other ways that the course of the pandemic could play out that would eliminate or reduce the need for a vaccine? Sure. It's another really terrific question. There's so much about this pandemic that we don't understand, but we know this can take one of a couple of different courses. First of all, it could blow through the population and just burn itself out. That's what happened with SARS. That's what happened with Zika to a large extent, for example. But given that so far in this first wave, relatively small proportions of the population have been infected, at least in zero studies, and that's where I say maybe 15 or 20% of a population, it makes you think this isn't going to burn out and that there will be another wave in the fall and potentially a wave after that. And so the vaccine developers are really in a race against the virus with the hope that they'll have a vaccine ready to impact the second wave or a wave after that. It's also possible that COVID-19 could become endemic in the population, in which case there would be a vaccine that would be needed in the very long term. If a therapeutic is developed or some other prophylactic medicine is developed, for example, monoclonal antibodies that might protect people exposed in advance or might be really life-saving, the need for the urgency to develop a vaccine will be different, but that would assume that those therapies would be effective and also that they could be scaled and manufactured at the scale necessary to take care of the pandemic for the world. Finally, what lessons do you hope can be learned during this time of rapid vaccine development that would allow researchers, policymakers, funders to be better prepared to respond to emerging infectious diseases in the future? Well, I think the first lessons are about the criticality of early surveillance, and the criticality of early information sharing. In this epidemic, those of us at CEPI watched the news of this pandemic arising in China at the end of December, and in very early January, activated our developers to say, when the gene sequence is published, can you guys start working on a vaccine? The fact that there's now gene sequencing and global sharing of those gene sequences has really been transformative in terms of letting research and developers get a really early start on vaccine development and changes in structural biology and all sorts of new developments in science are really accelerating the development, particularly of these early candidates. For example, being able to identify the spike protein as the antigen of interest here, has taken us a really long way forward. But as you go forward in the development process, number one, what you find is that there is no entity that really has sufficient funding 
to develop a whole series of vaccine candidates, take them all through the development process, and to fund that development at scale. So the funding, once you get through the research part, is a really huge problem. And then it turns out that as we got into this pandemic, there was no entity in the world that was, let's say, responsible for financing this incredibly expensive manufacturing, which has to go on if you're going to make doses of vaccine at risk for the world. And then finally, we're facing a situation where the whole world needs and wants vaccine at once. So there are lots of questions and concerns about whether the country in which the vaccine is first made will take and keep all the doses for themselves. There are lots of questions about how you vaccinate the world and in what order so that you do the most public health good and restart the economy as quickly as possible. And all of those things were issues that we weren't quite prepared to confront when this pandemic started. But I certainly hope that as we look at the ecosystem going forward, that we resolve these critical questions so that we're in a better position for the future. Thank you, Dr. Lurie.